Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Mike Johnson approves the national prayer breakfast to be held in the Capitol. Church and state. Our state is a church. Talking fences. Harry Lippman stops by to talk to us about Trump's incoming legal woes. Then we'll talk to the founders of Find Out Pack, Gina Ortiz-Jones and Lauren Miller, and they'll tell us about how they're fundraising to get rid of three Texas Supreme Court judges. But first, we have the Washington Post columnist, Dana Milbank. Welcome back, Dana. Dana, what's going on? A a great honor, as always, to be with you. (laughs) I'm sorry. What is happening in Washington, D.C. with these Republicans controlling the House with their one vote majority? It's very exciting because, you know, it was just a well-oiled machine when they had the uh, five vote majority. (laughs) (laughs) So from that from that point of view, I I don't really see it as being much different with the one vote majority. But if you do, you know, if you have things like the uh, impeachment of Mayorkas, Well, I suppose that could make a difference there if you've got a speaker who has never been really in leadership. Yeah. But, you know, if you all you need is a Ken Buck or a Tom McClintock and suddenly the whole (laughs) thing goes down. And then we saw it this week, you know, this uh, tax bill, which has huge bipartisan 
support, there were four New York Republicans. I, they call themselves moderates. I don't think they're actually moderates. Right. But they are desperate to keep their seats. So in that way, they want to pretend to be moderates. Right. So, and they want to pretend that they're doing something for the you know state and local taxes for the, you know, the wealthy residents. Salt. One of Jesse's favorite things. Salt. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, it's not good for the blood pressure. But so they basically shut down the House floor for, I think, 40 minutes this week, taking a page from the Freedom Caucus. So, yeah, it makes it even easier to disrupt things and bring everything to a halt. But since everything was already disrupted and at a halt, I'm not sure it fundamentally changes. And in a way, we're now at the point where you know, to pass anything, you need to do it without a rule, which means you have to have a two-thirds majority. So in a in a perverse way, this uh, tiny majority, after defeating them for the last year and change, they're now deciding, okay, well, we just have to do things on a bipartisan basis uh, so that you can get that two-thirds vote so you can avoid the Freedom Caucus and whoever else wants to bollocks things up. So it's actually suddenly, after all this time, had something of a beneficial effect. I don't expect that will last terribly long. In fact, uh, Wednesday might may have been the high watermark for that. So basically what happened was Kevin McCarthy, in his incredible craven stupidity, decided to put a few MAGAs on the Rules Committee, which then made it completely impossible to bring anything up for a vote. Yeah. I mean, so there are two, maybe three uh, MAGA types, the kind who are, you know, really the rebels, the Freedom Caucus types on the Rules Committee. So, yeah, if they vote against the rule with the Democrats, it never goes to the floor. But I think even more to the point is that you have to pass the rule on the floor before you go on to any debate. And that's always been a party line vote. You know, the majority party sets the rules for the debate. All the members of the majority party vote for it, even if they're not going to support the bill at the end and all the uh, the opposition votes against it, even if they are going to support the bill. So, you know, that's just been standard. And I think going back to 2003, until these guys took over, there had not been a single instance of a rule being defeated. And now there have been five or six instances of the rule being defeated. And and multiple of that, they've pulled bills off the floor because the rule was going to be defeated. So it's now just sort of a routine practice to throw sand in the gears. So let's take a moment here to think about how this never happened to Nancy Pelosi. It is true. I mean, in fairness, it never happened. Right. Or the others either. Right. I mean, it didn't have right, exactly many. Any competent speaker. Um, <laughs> right. It's true. I mean, there are so many things now you just say, OK, well, that was unheard of before. But, uh, you know, it's now just routine in this debauched uh, uh, chamber. But, you know, look, Pelosi was uniquely effective because people were afraid of her. It's a good point. This is they have really hit silly season in the United States House of Representatives. And it's not there are not two sides to this. This is Republicans engaging in bad politics. Right. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's it's been I mean, look, we're now in what month? A 14 of this constant dysfunction. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, 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 Pelosi had a, a Democratic majority of a similar size to what the Republicans have worked with. And 
they were able to govern. You know, the Senate is split just as evenly. And sure enough, they're, you know, despite all the odds, they're able to come up with things like, you know, a bipartisan compromise on on a border bill, which, of course, the House is now going to kill. It can be done. It's just, you know, it is a unique problem. It's a uniquely Republican problem. And at the moment, it's a House Republican problem. So let's talk about this border bill, because it's an amazing bit of real hypocrisy. Republicans said, we are not going to fund Ukraine. We want a border. We only want the border. We care about the border. The border is the most important thing. The border is a crisis. The border is this, the border is that, because inflation's gone way down and we can't run on that anymore. So now it's the border. So then Chris Murphy, Kirsten Sinema, and James Lankford sit in a room for three months And they put together something that's probably a lot of people and nobody's seen the text of it. But from what Chris Murphy said to me, it seems like it's probably fine. It's going to make everyone unhappy, which means it's probably okay, ish But ultimately, then Republicans are like, well, we can't possibly pass this. Yeah, no, it's it's an astonishing thing. I mean, you've been hearing about this existential crisis and invasion at the border. MS-13, MS-13, murders, fentanyl overdoses. It just been this constant drumbeat. And as you said, the absolute insistence on it. And you had people like Mike Johnson, Steve Scalise saying, this can only be done with legislation. Congress has to act and then making it a requirement. And then, you know, essentially people uh, called their bluff on it. And it, it might have worked had Trump not got in there and said, OK, blame me for the failure of this. We don't want to give Democrats this issue during the election. So to Trump's credit, he was completely out there in the open saying we'd rather have this as an issue than actually fix the problem. And now you see Republicans, particularly the House Republicans, just sort of all reversing themselves and saying, it's totally fine. Biden has all the authority he needs. There's no need for legislation whatsoever. And then getting sort of further twisted up and saying, well, it would be good to have legislation if it were legislation like what we had. None of it particularly makes any sense. But what is completely obvious is that there is a compromise. There is a consensus to do something about asylum policy and all the other things, you know, border security, all the other things that Republicans have been howling about for months and for years. And they're now going to torpedo that. And, you know, this is a little bit of a replay of what we saw back in 2013 and 2014. The Senate worked out a compromise and uh, House Republicans killed it. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot that happens these days to make one cynical. But if it really is the order that is, uh, you know, causing this massive crisis and this massive invasion that they're going to... Right. If it's a crisis, you should at least want to fix it, right? Right. Even if it's not perfect, you know, go ahead and try it. And Look, it's all well and good to say that Biden has all the authority he needs. It's just plain nonsense. You know, first of all, he's taken more executive actions than Trump ever did. Yeah, Trump had a lot of policies that worked, and most of them have been struck down in the courts because they were illegal. So they can't be re-implemented. Then there are others like catch and release. Okay, end it. Well, right, you can end it if you have the money to detain all these people, which Congress hasn't provided. So his hands really are tied to a great extent, and it does require congressional action. Remember, Republicans have been so mad at Obama for executive actions, right? Like this was the how dare you use these executive actions. Now they're saying, well, if Biden wants to solve the border, he can use executive actions. 
Right. He can just take out his pen. Yes, there are hypocrisies folded into hypocrisies here. That's like the third level hypocrisy on, on executive action. This is like the underlying anxiety I think we all have in this political world. What is the information that people are getting? If people were able to absorb this information, they'd be like, this is absolute madness. But do you think that voters are following this and how would they? Well, it's probably the usual story where, you know, if you're in the MAGA Fox News silo, no, you're probably not getting this information at all. Or to the extent you are, it's that Biden created this problem and he has the tools he needs to fix it. But I do think this is, you know, if you look at there at the, you know, larger reality-based population, which will, after all, determine the outcome of the election, I think this does change the debate, at least rhetorically, in the sense of giving Democrats some ammunition, saying, right, there is a crisis at the border, or at least a really big problem. We got together with some sensible Republicans and came up with a solution. And Donald Trump said he will be happy to take the blame for bringing it down. So, you know, at the very least, it blunts the argument against Democrats. But, you know, I don't in a way, I don't even like to think about this as a political matter that just think about how reckless and irresponsible that is, unless the Republicans were making it up and they just weren't concerned all along about hundreds of thousands dying from opioid overdoses and gang violence and all these murders and rapes and terrorists coming across the border. So either you didn't really mean it in the first place or worse, you actually do mean it and this stuff is going on, but you'd rather have a campaign issue than do something. The problem for Republicans is either the threat is real or the threat is not real. And here's an opportunity to solve the threat. I don't believe polls, but polling whatever for Biden is bad. People we know in New York and Washington are very mad at him for a number of reasons. But you look at the fundamentals of like the political landscape right now. Right. We have this miraculous. I, you saw I'm sure you saw this piece in Axios yesterday where of all of the G7 countries, America has sort of done the impossible and has this soft inflationary landing. Right. Which is sort of not in Paul Krugman's greatest dreams has this happened. You know, <laughs> and we do 10,000 interviews a week. So how much time have I sat with Justin Wolfers and he says, am I optimistic? I'm optimistic. But. Do I know, you know, so much hemming and hawing? And it turns out they were right. So really, the Inflation Reduction Act, instead of being this terrible Bidenomics punchline, it actually reduced inflation. So if this were a Republican president, people would say this guy is unstoppable because the economy is so good. But for some reason, for this, it's like no chicken prices haven't gone down enough and gas is only under $3. But it just seems to me like there's way more pessimism in the media landscape and also just in around me, more importantly. I think that part of it's uh, a media story. uh, And I think part of it is that it's no longer the economy stupid. It's the tribal politics stupid. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny. Biden was 
citing an op-ed from the, the Times about the price of Snickers bar, saying that, you know, people recognize that as inflation because they buy more Snickers bar. And, and then the RNC, uh, you know, tweets that out as, you know, he's talking about Snickers bar. It's evidence of dementia. <laughs> so right. in a sense, it's like, OK, that's what we're talking about here is they've, con- you know, you know, they've convinced uh, their voters that, you know, this poor drooling, doddering guy is running the country. So, you know, they're not exactly f- focused on that. So I think the usual economic laws don't necessarily apply. And part of it is we in the media, number one, we have allowed it to happen. We haven't uh, adapted to the new landscape. And the other part is we're just marginalized, those of us, you know, in what you would call the mainstream media. We just don't get through to, you know, a huge swath of the population. Let me ask you about this thing that I think we don't talk about quite enough, but is something that Trump did the last time he did it in 2020 and it backfired on him then too. So his whole thing is that Biden is demented and that there's something wrong with Biden and that he's not really doing it, that really Kamala is the president and this is a, you know, and Marxist, Kamala and Marxist and whoever else he can think of as also fascist. But I don't know if you've seen Donald Trump speak lately. He has definitely lost a step. Right. Like we could debate whether or not Biden, whatever, he tripped on a sandbag, whatever. But Trump was convinced that Nancy Pelosi was Nikki Haley. He was, you know, he thinks he beat Obama. I mean, he cannot he he seems like he's really lost his stop. Yeah, I did. This was my column last week from New Hampshire. Yeah. The things you cited about Haley and Pelosi confusing Obama and Biden. But I just like I sat through a hundred minute speech, which I should get combat pay for or something. <laughs> I've sat through one of those before. And then just like did a transcript of it, just went through over. And he's just like he tells the same stories over and over again with the exact same lines over and over again, you know, and sometimes he's, you know, talking about, you know, we're going to get into World War II when he, he means World War Three, you know, or he just starts reading <laughs> random words off the right. teleprompter. I feel like you should know that one. Any of which if Biden had done, it would be national news. The guy is, you know, uh, affirmed that the guy has lost his mind, you know, and I think part of it is you know, sort of the the media's designated flaw about Biden is he's a senile, like they've sort of embraced that. You know, the designated flaw of, of Donald Trump is he's an authoritarian and a racist, which I mean, it's, it's not like that's wrong, <laughs> that designated flaw. So I think we tend to give him a pass because that's not his designated flaw. If Biden suddenly said something authoritarian, well, we probably wouldn't take that much notice because that's not his thing. So, you know, I, I think it's just a, a, a natural in our shorthand. And we don't necessarily say, hey, wait a second, this guy, whether it's, uh, you know, age or stress or running around to a lot of different courtrooms all the time, either also in addition to Biden or perhaps even worse than Biden uh, seems to be changing because we forget that, yeah, yeah, Biden's stiffer and all that now. But the guy never, you know, sort of completed a, a, a full coherent sentence. And, and that's when I was covering him in the Senate back in the 1990s. You know, I have this theory about Biden, which I feel like is going to get everyone mad at me, which is and actually I said this to a straight reporter and he was like, you're wrong. But I actually think I'm right, which is this Biden is actually more coherent Biden. Molly, I would just say that's a low bar. (laughs) Right. But I mean, he's sort of he can stick to things. You know, he was never a gifted orator. Like, that's not who he is. Not at all. Well, first of all, just because he has a stutter, so he has trouble giving speeches, which is 
kind of ludicrous when you right. consider he's the president it's, of the United States. Right, that's the job. And he was always just sort of rambling. And just, I remember listening to him in the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, he gave like a 30-minute speech, you know, before one of these nominees. And he said, all right, and now I'd like to get to the my speech. <laughs> it's just, it was, <laughs> so yeah, I think what, I think part of what you say is true that, I mean, people would say, yeah, he's more scripted now and his staff's doing the work, but it's also a matter of more discipline that Trump makes fun of him for giving two or three minute speeches. I would take that over the hour and 40 minute speech in which we have to keep hearing the same things over and over. I remember at CPAC sitting through those speeches and being like, oh. Yes, I, I feel the pain you felt then. And we're and, and this and the campaign is just beginning. It's bad. <laughs> Thank you, Dana Milbank. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. 
And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Harry Lippman is a former U.S. attorney and host of the podcast, Talking Feds. I just want to say welcome to another law politics mashup with Molly John Fast and I'm Harry Lippman, where we kind of have very few rules, but I try to uh, shoot a political question at Molly that's been on my mind, and she reciprocates with a legal question that's been on hers, and it's a mashup. Yes. So I want to ask you first, because there are all these court cases, the civil fraud case, we're waiting for the number, right, that Trump is going to owe. Talk us through exactly what that is and why it hasn't happened yet. Well, okay. I mean, what he said, it's funny because we're waiting on two and one, we're really starting to get uh, nervous. That's the immunity from the D.C. Circuit. With the one you're talking about. Talk about the immunity for a second on the D.C. Circuit, because I know Andrew Weissman has been expressing some irritation about that, too. Yeah, or consternation. So, look, back when it was argued, everybody tuned in because the question first you wanted to know, as always, which way are they going to go? And I thought and I think every observer thought they're going to reject his claim of immunity. I hold to that view. But it's always within the substance game and the delay game. And the thing about there's two potential sources for delay. And as the time goes on, they get more likely because the D.C. Circuit was out of the gate with a really fast briefing schedule. And when they've done that in the past, they've issued opinions within a week or two. They've clearly been writing before even the oral argument. And that hasn't happened. Why not? Two possibilities. And first is the presiding judge, uh, Florence Henderson, may not, uh, not Florence Henderson. I was going to say, what are the odds? Yeah, right. May not be buying the same theory, even though I think she's not going to give him immunity. And the two of them, the other two, Childs and Pan, state some like different nuanced theory of why no immunity. Here's why it matters, not just for the days that are elapsing. But if Henderson says something that's different, it could be that the Supreme Court would be interested in taking that. You know, the six uh, conservatives would like their view. This is the president is can be king theory, right? That whenever the president does anything, it's fine. The one they articulated in oral argument was he can command the Navy SEALs to gun down an opponent 
And unless there's an impeachment and conviction, he can't be prosecuted. That's how forcocked it is. But the worry is that even though if they reject it, they'll do it in a way that gives him yet more time. One of two ways. Supreme Court decides to take the case that could really drag on. Or they state some theory that then goes back down to Chutkin, who applies it, you know, easy, easy as pie. That's happened before. But then would there be another round of appeal from the remand? So what's what's irritating Andrew and consternating me or both is the possibility that this delay augurs yet more delay after they issue the opinion. So far, we've lost a month. We were at April. We can handle a month, but what if it turns into two or three? It gets really dicey when you're in the heat of a campaign, you know, a national campaign. The central tension here really is that legally Donald Trump has sort of two defenses he uses. One is to run out the clock and just to keep trying to kick things up to higher and higher courts because he knows it'll get him time, right? That's really his biggest way that he sort of solves his legal problems, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the other? That is the way. When you look over the whole landscape, he can't, you know, if he's not elected president, let's just put it that way, he can't escape serious damage to liberty or pocketbook or both. His really only uh, kind of, you know, play here is to somehow win the presidency and then take it from there, shut down the feds, investigate Fonnie Willis, et cetera. So all of these, all of these, you know, he has some, some claims that don't stink, but not very many. But it doesn't matter when you look at the whole panorama. You know, he he's in deep, deep peril unless he can win. Obviously, that keeps you up night thinking. I'm sure you, too. Can he win? And so what I, you know, I try to conceptualize in my mind, who is the voter who went for Biden in 2020 and will say, "Okay, I think I'm for Trump this time around because he has to not just consolidate and keep the base. He's losing a little bit in the middle, but he has to gain. And I thought there is no such person. But it seems like there are some cohorts, Molly, that are like actually expanding a bit for him. I'm thinking of college educated males. That was, you know, it was always that line that wasn't there. Hispanics, maybe. What the hell is causing his base to actually grow a bit? I don't think his base has grown. I think the problem and the reason why we have so much trouble with polling now is that there's a shifting electorate. So in 2016, the people who made Trump president were impossible to anticipate because a lot of them had never voted. Not a lot of them, but a certain percent had, you know, was a shifting electorate, a group that pollsters didn't know to look for. And since then, they have been shifting the electorate to try and predict these sort of ghost voters that might come back. Because ultimately, right, we're only working on polls, right? I mean, what else are we working on? What yes, other information right. do we yeah. have? Right. Yeah. I mean, Sarah Longwell does these really good focus groups, but that's 20 people, you know, yeah. or so we're really working on polls. And like, I think there are some things that are like voter registration, for sure. You can work on that, right? You can see where people are registering. But even that, it's not a science. One of the things that is like you could look at is primary voter turnout, right? So like 
Iowa is a very religious, tends to be very white and religious. They had very small turnout for Trump. That was like he did really well, but it was, you know, half of what it had been four years ago. So I, I think that's a question. So your answer is that it isn't really like it's another foible with the polls, maybe. I would say until the summer, we're not going to know who the look likely voters are. So we really don't know. Does it seem to me, I think there are people who will vote Republican no matter what. But they did four years ago. Yes. I don't think that those are people who voted for Biden who are leaving Biden. But I also think there are like these X factors, right? Like a third party candidate. Also, like how information is getting to the electorate is a real problem, too. I would say, like, are people not getting news? We've all heard the story of like the person who is like Biden is not pro-choice because there are all these abortion bans that are happening while he's president. So, I mean, there are unknown unknowns there. Fair enough. Okay, your turn, because I want to try to get to to three. I know your producer's tough here. My question for you is, okay, so the presidential immunity, again, should happen sooner rather than later. It should have happened a couple weeks ago, and that's that's why everyone's biting their nails. Then there's this fraud number. What's the timetable on that? Very, very soon, because the guy said, I'm I'm aiming to do it by the 31st. Now, you know, they don't subtract half a half a grade every day is late, but there's very big public focus. So I think the most likely day is today. The second we're on February 1st, second most likely tomorrow. And if you ask for the number, you know, she started the AG James at 250, then went to 370. I think he'll probably go under what she's asking for because he's thinking about review on appeal. There's already a lot of chunky issues there. But still, this is drawing real blood, even if they don't see it for a while. Eugene Carroll and Letitia James, he's got to pony it up in order to appeal. And if he has even the kind of liquidity he says he's got, it still seems to be almost white. Yeah, it feels to me like it really has sort of brought him a bit to his knees. And that's a that's a big deal because his voters seem to count on his not just doing whatever he wants, but getting away with it. Can his donors donate to the settlement? Yeah, there. I mean, there's some complicated election rules, but that's been the, that's been the weeks, the Achilles heel, right? He just that, you know, he, we know he paid all these legal fees, et cetera. I mean, we've seen the filings for the legal fees that are humongous, right? I mean, 50 million over the last year. right? And he uses it as a sort of uh what you know, tool over his co-defendants to keep them close to pay their fees or not. Okay, I was really interested. You had, that was a great article in Vanity Fair that you wrote, but it put me in mind. Have you seen this finding? Really striking that young voters. There's a really seems to be a pronounced division between men and women, not just on abortion or Me Too or whatever, but across the board. You have significantly more progressive women in this young cohort, 22 to 30 or whatever. Do you buy that? And man, what does it augur for going forward? That's from this data journalist called John Burns Murdoch in the FT, who we actually had on the podcast. I mean, I think it's a number of things, but I think Roe is the big one. I mean, 
well, you have one group of people where bodily autonomy, they used to have the right to have an abortion, a federal right to have an abortion. They don't have it anymore. But no, it's made, that made them more progressive across the board, apparently. Yeah, because they're furious. You have the right to abortion gone. You have Republicans obsessed with your body, right? Like these stories about their tracking, your cycles. You have that woman in Ohio who had to face a grand jury for the disposal of a court because she had a miscarriage in the toilet, right? You have the woman in Texas. I mean, you have these horror stories. And then I would add, you have Republicans fighting with Taylor Swift, right? So you have this sense in which they're saying, the women we want are Kimberly Guilfoyle. That's a good woman, right? But Taylor Swift, the self-made billionaire musician, that's not okay. And so I think people bristle when you tell them what to do. And remember, so much of America is about this like weird, and I'm not even sure it's good, but this kind of freedom, you know, to have guns and be crazy. I think women, I think there's a reaction towards that. And it's 2024. I mean, it's crazy. Everything else he can kick the can on except the New York case. Is that right? Not quite yet, but it's, but that's the bad trend. Uh, You know, Eileen Cannon is really slow walking it. The big mess in Fulton County with Fonnie Willis and Wade, et cetera, I think works to make it much harder to do that one on time. The big hope always has been the most important and the most likely to move with dispatch, the Chutkin uh, January 6th case. And that's precisely why this delay in the immunity opinion is so worrisome because that's really the focus. I think the New York case will happen. Conduct before he was president, they it's, it's somehow already, I think, been absorbed by the electorate. I see that as the least likely to be a serious game changer. They'd Stormy Daniels case, you know. Right. No, no, I know. It's a state that goes to a federal. It's a weird statute that there's not a huge precedent for. But I wonder... How much, you know, Trump has this whole thing and this is where he uses these criminal trials or civil trials as a kind of campaign event. So he says to his people, you know, he gets up there, he speechifies. This is America. He does all of his political stuff. I'm your martyr. Yeah, right. I'm your martyr. But when he does it, it tends to backfire. These two things were not made to work together. So like, you know, he brags about how rich he is and then he gets this huge judgment, right? Like if he had said, I have no cash, you know, that's what you're supposed to say when you're a defendant. He's in this situation where he just can't, you know, he's sort of stuck in this hamster wheel. Even if New York is not the best case, having the adult film star back in court testifying, that just doesn't seem like it helps grow the electorate. Yeah, I agree. But he's had 91 counts against him and it really doesn't seem to have moved the needle. The polling and you point out there's a lot to be still learned about the weaknesses in polling suggests if he's actually convicted, that would move the needle. But this one seems like you know, it's it's disgusting and it was definitely done to corrupt an election and you would think it has a, a real oomph, but uh, it was already before the uh, election and it, it seems like the least likely for that reason. It's all like in a parade of, of horribles. We've been fooled so many times, but it seems like I, I am confident in saying that it doesn't have the same you know, sledgehammer. It doesn't get to what's really wicked about him as president or what he did as president, et cetera. Just him as a as a consummate, you know, jerk. 
the question of like, does it necessarily matter what the case is in this low information ecosystem? Him just being dragged in and out of court. I mean, there have got to be people who see that and are like, I don't know that I want that in my next president. I think that's part of Nikki Haley. This would be more your Valowick again, but that's sort of we don't need the chaos and uncertainty. You don't have to hate Trump. But man, don't you want to put him behind you. And so and a jury standing up and saying conviction and, you know, his having some accountability. Is that it or is it the 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 nature of the conduct? And you're right. It's a low informed electorate. And that actually goes to my last question for you, which is for lawyers watching him, you know, in the Eugene Carroll case has been mind boggling. I, you know, I feel like I'm reading a 19th century novel and he didn't stand for the jury. Oh my. Right, right, but right. Um, it does seem to be, I really like no other litigant I've ever seen. What an asshole. That said, it's whether he just can't help himself or it's a calculation. I've heard political analysts like you saying, uh, you know, it actually helps him that's his political strategy. And so, and my question is, is it really the being a sort of feral child who does everything but shoots spitballs at the judge? Is that actually a plus for his political supporters? And, you know, is it something they ignore or is it truly like add to his political luster that, you know, he can throw whoopee cushions all over the courtroom and be astonishingly, you know, violating of all the rules of decorum. So when I talked to Robbie Kaplan on my podcast, I asked her, I said, like, well, because I had heard the deposition was really hairy, but she actually said the worst part of the whole trial was watching Alina Haba and Donald Trump behave so badly in front of this Judge Kaplan, who's like a very formal judge. And she said, you know, when you get in front of judges like this, you can't behave like that. It's just not how any of this is done. And, you know, Alina Haba was like fighting with him because this is reality television lawyering here. So his people believe that like this was a deep state conspiracy against him. But a lot of them don't understand how things work, right? Like how courts work. And so I don't know is the answer. I mean, I think that it seems very embarrassing, but, you know, this is the fuck your feelings crowd, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking what will what it'll look like next time we talk. Will Haley still be there? Will there actually be a case about to go? So I'll it'll be fun as always. I hope there'll be a case about to go. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Great to see you. All right, thank you. Hang in there. All right, you too. Gina Ortiz Jones and Laura Miller are the founders of Find Out Path. Welcome to Fast Politics. Now, I'm going to have you both introduce yourselves, but I'm going to call you the ladies of the find out pack. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First, why don't you introduce yourself, Gina? Yeah, so Gina Ortiz-Jones, I am the founder of Find Out Pack. Um, and for those that are wondering, yes, it is based on a scientific concept of F around and find out. Previously, um, a longtime public servant, ran for Congress. I was not successful, but look, everything happens for a reason. And I was honored to serve as the 27th Undersecretary of the Air Force. And I'm now, as mentioned, the founder of this PAC. Right. 
And Lauren Miller, tell us how you got here. I'm Lauren Miller. I am a resident in Texas. And in October of 2022, I had to travel to Colorado for an abortion because I had an unviable twin and I had to save the life of myself and the healthy twin that I was carrying. Oh, Jesus Christ. I, You know, as a mother of twins who've known a lot of people who've had to have a selective reductions, nobody does that because they're lazy. You do that because you want to save the other, your other fetus. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so sorry that you had to do that. Thank you. We were just trying to do what was best for our healthy twin. And it was shocking that we couldn't do that in Texas. So will you tell us a little bit about that story? Can you talk about it a little bit more? Like how many weeks were you? What was the circumstances? And also what did your doctor tell you? So I'll start with the last part of that in terms of what did my doctor tell me? So at the time, because it was so soon after Roe fell, there was and there still is this huge culture of fear around reproductive health in Texas. And I would be talking to to doctors, nurses, genetic counselors, they get halfway through a sentence and then just freeze, just scared to say the word abortion out loud. I mean, it was like you had Ken Paxton or, you know, the Texas Supreme Court just sitting there in the room with you. Like they could have just been taking notes in the corner and that's what it felt like. And all that any of these medical professionals could say was that every day that I continued this twin pregnancy, my unviable twin put his twin and myself at greater risk. And so it, it wasn't, it really just wasn't even a decision. I was right at about 15 weeks when I went to Colorado and got the abortion. Jesus, Jesus. Did anyone ever say, as doctors, we know this is wrong, but I mean, like, was there ever sort of a, a moment where they were able to sort of explain to you, there's no clarity in the law. So talk about that a little bit. There's so little clarity in the law. And that's that's intentional. Like, that is completely intentional. I stood, you know, a, about a year ago now in front of the, the Texas Capitol and called on legislators to add clarity and noted they are killing us and they haven't done anything. They kind of did a little pass a little something that really didn't do anything. And so this is intentional to have this lack of clarity. And you ended in this situation where everybody's just apologizing to us. They were just, I'm so sorry, I can't say more. And just saying, I'm so sorry, I can't do anything. I was in the ER two different times. And I remember the second time it was after this diagnosis for trisomy 18. Our son had just this list of issues, all of which were fatal, like half of his brain was fluid. And I remember the ER doctor just standing there holding the chart and just kind of shaking her head and saying, I'm so sorry, because she couldn't do anything. And I was in there throwing up so much that I thought the placenta was going to detach and she couldn't do anything. Right. And you were one of the lucky ones, right? Because you were able to go and have this treatment and save your surviving child. I'm the best case scenario. I had every resource at my disposal. I had the the money to travel. I had the time to travel. My husband can take off work. My work was flexible. I mean, we truly had everything at our disposal. I was texting with a doctor in Colorado because he was a friend of a friend. And that's not the reality for most people. And especially in Texas, where we've got 147 counties without an OB. I mean, think of the population of Phoenix not having an OB. That's what we're dealing with in rural Texas. 
I mean, as someone who has three children, two pregnancies, I know how heartbreaking it is because I, you know, I had a number of abnormalities and stuff that when you have to have an abortion of children that you desperately fucking want, it's so heartbreaking. And then you're not even in your own home. I mean, it's just so incredibly dehumanizing and horrendous. Gina, will you explain your thinking behind this pack? So I grew up on the far west side of San Antonio and I went to John Jay High School. And if you're from San Antonio, that means something. And so I say that because my visceral reaction to reading the seven-page opinion in December, now this was specific to the Kate Cox case, but really after I read that, what those justices essentially said is that this pregnant mother of two was not close enough to losing her life or close enough to losing her fertility, and therefore she did not qualify for the medical exception. And so obviously that begs a lot of questions, right? Well, one, how close is close enough, right? How are we defining that? And two, you know, who are these partisan justices? And they are partisan. We elect our judges and justices here in Texas. Who are these partisan extremist justices to say they know better than this woman's doctor or frankly, any woman's doctor? It was really just infuriating for me uh, to, to read that opinion as nonsensical as it was. And so the visceral reaction was, you know, F around, you're going to find out. And so shortly after I started reaching out to some folks, well, and thinking about how would we how would we improve this, right? We're not going to have a, a statewide um, initiative like you see in other states, but we could have actually something on par, right? Because these folks are elected, that means they can be unelected, right? And so we've got three folks that are on the ballot in November, and it's Jimmy, John, and Jane, and that's really their names, Jimmy Blacklock, John Devine, and Jane Bland. And we've got the opportunity to unseat those folks. So explain, they are Supreme Court judges. They're justices. The justices here, again, are elected through partisan elections. They serve six-year terms. There is no term limit. I think what's also important to understand is the Texas Supreme Court has traditionally been a stepping stone for higher office for folks here, right? Look at Greg Abbott. He served on the court. You also look at somebody like John Cornyn. And so this has been a, um, a, a stepping stone. But again, we can hold these folks accountable. This is, you know, our it's a, it's a little bit of a different ballot initiative, but this is absolutely an accountability measure because, you know, this is not just about, you know, what happened to, to Kate Cox, but obviously, as, as Lauren mentioned, is, is happening to many, many women. Um, and, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say on the very first day of Black History Month that we know that the effects of these awful laws disproportionately affect, excuse me, Black and Brown Texans. Lauren mentioned earlier she had every resource. You know, there are so many Texans that don't have the resources um, because we're a state that hasn't expanded Medicaid, right? Just these basic things that we could have in our state, let alone access to reproductive care, uh, is affordable health care. And we don't we don't have those things. So. This pack is, is going to you know, work to, to unseat these, these, these three folks in, in November. So there are other people running for those seats, too. The primary for the Democrats, um, that'll I mean, the primary in general is, is the first week of March here in, in Texas. But Jimmy, John and Jane are the incumbents. And so those folks, I mean, I think John has a uh, primary. He'll very likely be fine there. I should just mention the other thing that I thought about when I thought about how do we get, you know, obviously to a better place is looking into the backgrounds of these folks. So let me just give you just a little bit of a, a snippet, right, of, of who these folks are. So I mentioned the first one, Jimmy Blacklock. All you've got to know about this guy is um, essentially what Governor Abbott said about him at a 2018 Texas rally for life. And I'm going to say this, it's, I'm reading it verbatim. 
Governor said, I don't have to guess or wonder how Justice Blacklock is going to decide cases because of his proven record of fighting for pro-life causes. All right, that's J- John. Now, John Devine, this guy is real special. He has uh, campaigned, actually, on his wife's, his own wife's high-risk pregnancy. She lived, the, the child, you know, lived for, for an hour he also campaigned on being arrested several times for protesting in front of abortion clinics. So she had a baby that she knew was going to die. It was a high risk. Yeah. Somehow having this baby that died is somehow more pro-life than avoiding all of this. I cannot speak to his intentions. What I can only speak to, and frankly, probably Lauren can speak to this even better, is if you are seeking justice and somebody has campaigned on this and has been very full about this, like what what does that instill in you in any level of confidence about impartiality or like looking at the facts of the case versus them just bringing in their personal biases on this thing? Lauren, please. Yeah, I was just going to say it, it's always really mind boggling to me because and you'll hear people who say that that's cathartic and then at least they had a chance at life. That is just not life. I mean, and looking at my son, it would have been torture. And it might have killed your other twin. Yeah. I wouldn't have either of my boys. And that's just the reality of it. And I don't think that it's fair to force people to risk their health. And in my case, again, like the health of a healthy twin for one that is not viable. That is an unrealistic demand. It's insane that the thinking here is that you should have a baby that's going to die because somehow that is more pro. I mean, it's just one of the craziest things I've ever heard. It just is so anti-science and anti-everything. Yeah. Why have science? Why have ultrasounds if none of it matters? And that's the thing. And you can just tell who has never seen somebody live in tremendous amount of pain that they would say, oh, yeah, let's put an infant through that. Like, that is not for a life. Yeah. Can I just bring up the rear on this last justice? Yeah. Jane Bland. Um, so she authored the opinion in the Lilith Fund for Reproductive Equity versus Dickinson, a separate case. But in that, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that anti-abortion groups could not be held liable for defamation for equating abortion to murder. Like she wrote that opinion. So again, like when you look at these three folks, can you can you imagine again, just I I cannot imagine, but I just going into the courtroom, trying to seek justice when you've already been through a very traumatic experience and knowing that you really don't have a fair shot here with these folks. And that's why we're going to work to unseat them. Democrats have a lot of anxiety about Texas as a state. Why <laughs> is your quest and, and winning this? We have anxiety, too. I've got hope, though. <laughs> hey, we've got hope. Right. And, that, and that's honestly what this is about. We are not hopeless. We are not helpless. Um, and honestly, that's why I am very optimistic about this. When you had initiatives put on the ballot in Kansas, when you had initiatives put on the ballot in Kentucky, and again, compositions very similar to our own state, folks overwhelmingly voted to protect reproductive freedoms, right? And so this is, again, a little bit different, but this is a statewide, these are statewide races. And we are closer in the state to flipping the state statewide than we are, you know, they've just gerrymandered so many of these districts. So it's really going to be hard to flip the the House or the Senate. But again, or elect folks that are going to protect reproductive freedom. 
And that's why I'm very optimistic about the ability to, to flip these seats and elect folks that are going to protect reproductive freedoms. These state Supreme Court justices, they will hear a lot of these cases, right? They could create exceptions if there were Democrats in them, right? They have acted, several legislators, even the author of, of Senate Bill 8 actually has asked the Texas Medical Board to issue guidance on what counts as a medical exception to the state's abortion laws. I mean, I think what we have the opportunity to do is not have people in these seats that have campaigned on protesting abortion clinics. And right, we can have people that have at least some shred of, and frankly, integrity when looking at these cases. Um, and that's just not what we have in these three folks right now. Right. That makes sense. You know, working on the judiciary is something that Democrats really are late on, right? There is no Democratic version of the Federalist Society. So it's such an important way to target these abortion restrictions. Frankly, people have not paid a, just a whole lot of attention to the Texas Supreme Court, but now in the rulings of these cases and seeing the everyday impact in their lives, I mean, they're they are coming to certainly know the importance of the court, and we will work to educate them on that continually, as well as the backgrounds of these of these individuals and why they certainly would deserve better. I should mention, to your point, this is the first time in our state that we have had a concerted effort to change the makeup of the court. So again, I think based on what we've seen in two other states, um, Kansas and Kentucky, on this issue, frankly, as people are are recognizing that you know this could happen within their own families. And you know, Lauren doesn't know this because it literally just happened last night, but we launched the pack yesterday. And one of my, a friend of mine that I haven't been in contact with for a little bit reached out and essentially had like the exact same case as Lauren. And so I just don't think folks are aware of how common this is and frankly, how many people in our community and our families and, and you know, in our, in our groups of, of friends, this can easily be an issue for. And this is a nonpartisan issue. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, Molly, if you're going to take maybe 90 seconds to play folks, the ad for folks, but this is a nonpartisan issue. It, 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 now, obviously, the two main parties have different stances on this issue, but I think that's probably more reflective of their values. There's nothing inherent about, you know, somebody seeking, seek, being able to listen to their doctor or having a say in their own fertility or, you know, having a say in when they're going to have more kids. There's nothing partisan about that. So, you know, we'll continue to talk about the issue because I think that's how we reach the most amount of folks. And that's what I think is really shocking about where we are is that it has become controversial to speak with your doctor and get the best advice for your situation and to get medical care for your situation. Across both parties, it doesn't matter because there's a one in four miscarriage rate. Bodies don't care about your party. That's just going to be what the math is. And these types of bans and these types of rulings impact miscarriage care, too. And so this hurts everybody. And you see this, you know, in Kate's case, it went from, the, you know, the doctor is saying this is what we need. I just want to have permission. And then you saw that just get overturned. And we should also say that like this on, on the issue of medical exceptions, Texans are with us on this issue. Right. I mean, so the University of Houston is Hobby School of Public Affairs. They did a survey. They published it in February of last year. And in that survey, 82% of those that responded supported medical exceptions. It's not even close. The other thing is I, I think we should you know, be very clear about the point that Lauren just made, which is the impact that this is already having on our inadequate level of one healthcare period, but OBGYNs in our state. Um, the number of 
folks that are not coming here after their training, the number of OBGYNs that are, you know, preferring to not practice here now as a result. I mean, that does not bode well, again, in our state. Look, one in 10 kids in this country lives in Texas. As goes Texas, so goes this country. And that's why this effort is also important, because we see that many of the the most, frankly, extremist policies, extremist laws are sometimes tested in Texas before they're exported, right? And so I think We've got a real opportunity to send a message, um, certainly to these justices, as well as every justice in this state, as well as those on other states who are thinking about, frankly, playing around with with these women's lives in a way that, it, frankly, just makes it more dangerous to be a woman. Just to show real quick what a horror show it is. One of my friends is an OB in Austin, and she said just last week she's never seen this many pregnant 14 and 15 year olds. So that's where we are headed if things don't start changing. Jesus. So if folks would visit, you know, findoutpack.com, please donate, you know, please share the launch video. Um, and, you know, we look forward to, to making sure that we've got um, Supreme Court justices that are that are worthy um, of our state. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Wally. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. My junk fast, you know, as much as I'm amused by Kristen Cinema's outfits, I'm not going to miss her if she goes. Uh, what are you seeing here? So it seems like Kirsten Cinema, Arizona's senior senator, may not be running again. And the reason why we think this comes from the Daily Beast, perhaps you've heard of it, that she spent $210,000 in private air travel. Private air travel. You'll remember that this is a woman who was originally part of the Green Party. She is now part of the I Don't Fly commercial party. (laughs) Either way, it's good news for Ruben Gallego for that. It is our moment of fuckery. Do not fly private. Do not waste taxpayer money. And for that, that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.